0: Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you made it. Man, I just, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I told the first service this as well, but uh, in worship, uh, I was just thinking about how blessed we are to have... Um, Church on Sunday, that we can come and we can worship and we can experience the presence of Jesus and we can love each other and we can, you know, uh, celebrate the cowboy win and we can have fun. And I, I just think um, it, just, it was one of those moments where I was just like, I man, we're so blessed to have uh, one of the best churches. And I believe this. I say this with all my heart. One of the best churches in the world. And we're a part of this wonderful community. And the fact that you guys come back and, and you listen to me preach um, is like, it's, it's mind-baffling. Um, and so I just want to thank you guys. I love you guys. Second Service, you guys are amazing. Um, God has great things in store for you. Amen? Amen. if what you, you know the drill, could you turn to your neighbor and just tell them how much you love them? Tell them it look good. You guys are amazing. Uh, hopefully you 've enjoyed the sermon series so far last week. How many of you were here last week? Okay, A few of you were here last week. Uh, we talked about joy if you didn 't listen to that message. Um, I, I think it 's an important cultural kind of message, tying it with, with Jesus. And so um, uh, so download that. Is that what you do? You download the podcast. So you can certainly do that. Um, thank you for all your prayers. I'm feeling a lot better. Can I get an amen to that? And so uh, I can't wait just to share just a few thoughts with you this morning. I, I know I went. I, last week was probably the longest message of my life. So Please forgive me. Um, I know the kids were going crazy as we were preaching and experiencing glory. Can I get an amen to that? Um, but I'm gonna try to uh, shorten it just a little bit. So, we're gonna get quickly into uh, God's Word. So, we're, we're in our Learning uh, to Be on Mission sermon series. So, we're talking about uh, Paul's thoughts in the book of Philippians. And so, he wrote this book in the mid, eight, uh, mid 50s AD. And so, he's writing from prison, most likely from Ephesus. And uh, this is a thank you letter, and we begin in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, could you say to all the saints, to the all, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I love this sentence so much, or this verse so much, I'm going to say it again, to all the saints. Everyone say, go, go ahead and turn, uh, turn to your neighbor and say, man, you're a saint, Turn to your second choice and say, you're an Oakland Raider fan, and you need to repent. <laughs> to all the saints in Christ, could you say, in Christ Jesus? Can we say, say it one more time? I like it when you talk back to me. In Christ, not disrespectfully, but I like it when, okay. In, say In Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Here's the thing. We're going to talk a little bit, and over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Christian identity, and today we're going to talk, before we get into uh, partnership, there's a big word that we're going to be discussing uh, in about 10 minutes. Before we do that, we got to talk about who you are in Christ, before Paul addresses them Uh, and their geographical location. Before Paul mentions any issues that they're going through, any circumstances that they're experiencing, uh, before Paul says anything about them, he first says that they are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the most important thing about you is not whether you're Republican or Democrat, narcissist or not, homeless, heartless, lazy, fatigued, tired, whatever. That's not the most important thing about you. Paul is saying through faith, through repentance, and in baptism, you are in Christ, and that is the thing that defines you the most. That is your primary identity. It's funny, um, it's not funny, uh, but when my kids come home after school, uh, or just in any given day, I address them not first by, oh, grumpy child, Like, I don't look at my kids and I'm like, uh, you know, you're irritable today. And so my relationship is defined by their irritability or throwing a fit or taking slime and throwing at their bros like eyeball or something like that. I don't define them. I don't. I don't address them as irritable or grumpy or rebellious or disobedient. Uh, my kids have good days. If you're a parent, you know this. And my kids have bad days. And we're in the season where we have more. We have more good days. Can I get any amen to that? But we have those bad days. But I address them as my kids. I address them, hey, you're, you're you're part of the Wild family. You are in, it's your last name, whether you like it or not. And uh, you will be a Dallas Cowboy fan, whether you like it or not. Tony Romo will always be your quarterback, whether you like it or not. There are certain values that as, as the Wild family that we live by, we are Christian, we follow Jesus. Jesus always become as always uh, before everything else. And they, and they know that. And I address them as my kids. You're Quincy, Wesley, Whitney, you're my children. You're part of this family. Uh, My relationship with you is not defined by your strengths, your successes, your weaknesses, your sins, whatever. My relationship with you is defined by I'm your dad and you're my kids. And I think this is what Paul is saying. He says, uh, you to all the saints, everyone say all the saints, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You are in Christ. You're not in your circumstances as we have talked about over the last few weeks. You're not in your sickness. You're not in your cancer. You're not in your poverty. You're not in your relationship dysfunction. You're not in your addiction first. You are in Christ. Well, Chris, how does that work? Well, we find in Mark chapter one, we also see this in Acts chapter nine. But in Mark chapter one, Jesus is baptized, and we, we see that the heavens are torn open, and a voice out of heaven speaks over Jesus You are my son in whom I am well pleased. The question that I want you to answer this morning is Where did Jesus get his identity from? He got it from above, He got it from heaven. He got it from his father. His father spoke over him, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the reason why Jesus was able to get through the difficult circumstances in his ministry, the reason why Jesus could in the Garden of Gethsemane say, it's not my will but your will be done, is because he knew his father loved him and that he was his son. And so he was able to negotiate every difficult circumstance. The problem is, is that we usually get this flipped. Or we reverse this kind of uh, scheme uh, that Paul has for us. We usually think of ourselves as in something, whether that's sickness or addiction or frustration or tired or lazy or whatever. And being in Christ is secondary. No, if you're baptized through faith and through repentance, you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're a saint. I bet you that when you woke up this morning, the last thing you thought about yourself was, oh, I'm a saint. Right? Did anyone wake up this morning? I woke up really early this morning. I do every Sunday morning. And this morning in particular, I don't know why, I just my thoughts were just weird. You you have weird thoughts? Okay, just weird thoughts, just random thoughts. You know, I'm not thinking crazy thoughts, uh, but just kind of weird thoughts about this situation and this scenario. I remember I woke up, I was just really tired, right? And uh, the last thing I was thinking about myself was uh, I'm a saint, right? People, when they come to church, Christians who come to church, um, this is a hard thing to reconcile, that they are, if they're in Christ, they are a saint, and it's hard to reconcile that with what they experience in any given day. Like many of you, uh, let's, let's say it truthfully, all of you made mistakes this week. All of you, you, you made bad decisions. Some of you, you raised your voice uh, at your kids. Maybe some of you, you took a chair, your team lost, and threw your, the chair through the window. I don't know. right? Maybe, maybe you just had a bad week. Um, if you're not careful, you go through life, and you allow life to define you or shape how you think about yourself. But what, what Paul is saying is if you're in Christ Jesus through baptism, you are a saint. Saint comes from the Greek word hagios. Everyone say hagios. Hagios simply means holy one or sacred or to be set apart. Holy, sacred, set apart. Go ahead and look at me. You are holy if you're in Christ. Your life is sacred if you're in Christ. Your first identity is not narcissism. Your first identity is not I'm broke. Your, your identity is not, firstly, I'm messed up. I'm a misfit. I, oops, I did it again. Like I, your, your identity is not my life is upside down. Or your identity is I'm not in this circumstance, your identity is that you're holy, you're sacred, you're set apart because of Jesus. How does this work? This works, and you've heard me say this for probably the last three or four years, is that when you're in Christ, you're in King Jesus. In this ancient setting, the life of the king, in the ancient Near East, this is how people thought about kings and people, the life of the king was intimately bound up with the life of the people. So what happened, according to one um, one scholar, N.T. Wright, What happened to the king also happened to the people. So if the king went out and won a victory over his enemies, the people also won that victory, even though they didn't like participate in that particular victory. So in other words, what is true of the king is also true of you if you're his people, if you are in Christ Jesus. So when we take a look at the New Testament and we see that Jesus is is healing the sick and he's transforming molecules in, in people's bodies, and he's doing exorcisms on people and he's defeating. Evil, and he goes to the cross and he dies for us and absorbs everything that has disfigured God's beautiful world, and then he comes back from the, the dead on the third day and launches new creation. If, if you're in Christ, that's your story. Can I get an amen to that? That is who you are. So saints, or to be a saint, is theologically also linked to this concept of image-bearing. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes humans, and uh, he makes them in what? His image. In the ancient setting, kings would take statues. Everyone say statues. Would take statues and place them in cities throughout their territory. And those statues were designed to remind all the subjects. Everyone say subjects. To remind all the subjects that the king was the one who was in charge. So image-bearing... Uh, is really, it's, it's connected to this idea of taking statues and reflecting one's image into the world. So when God makes humans, he makes people or humans in his image. And he places these statues or these image bearers throughout the world and they're designed to remind people who is in charge. Image bearers are there, are designed by God to show or or to reflect that God is ruling the world. You're an image bearer. If you're in Christ, you're not in your sin. You're not in your addiction. You are a saint. You are holy. You are set apart. Come on. Not only that, you're an image bearer. And so, your your responsibility as a human is to reflect the goodness of God back to the world. So, this concept of image bearing is fleshed out as we go through uh, the next few verses. Verse two, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace. Peace is that word, it comes from shalom, which means to put. Uh, it's how God puts the world back, back to rights. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we get to verse 3. Paul tells us why he's writing this letter. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then he segues into verse 4. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. We talked about joy last week. Verse 5, he's, he writes, because I'm, I'm full of joy... Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Could you say partnership? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what's partnership? Partnership is, um, in the Greek, it's translated koinia. Koinia can mean fellowship. Uh, It can also mean um, a a business relationship. Uh, One New Testament scholar gives us an example. It would be like, let's say, Peter. Do we have any Peters here today? Maybe a few of you. It's like Peter uh, going into um, the fishing industry with John. Um, It's a collaborative relationship. It's a legal contract. It's a legal binding contract. You have two parties or two partners now working together uh, as they um, go into this fellowship or as they go into this fishing industry. Koinia represents that. Koinia is not just... um, Uh, Maybe you have people doing um, friendship things and quilting and and trading baseball cards and, you know, going out and hanging out, and that's good. Koinia has the, the sense of being a partner, being involved, being on mission. Could you say being on mission? It's, it's you not sitting on the sidelines, being a partner. If you're in Christ, if you're holy, then you're an image bearer. And you're reminding everyone uh, in, in your neighborhood, in your world, when you go to work, you're reminding everyone about the goodness of God and his love and his grace. And koinia means that you're now a partner with God. That in, in, in fact, you actually lie at the center of this unfolding cosmic drama of God rescuing the world. Many people just, and many Christians have this weird concept that, man, what we do on Sunday is peripheral to the world. Like, man, um, Friday night or maybe maybe Thursday night football, maybe that's where the action is. Or I don't know what you think. You know, it's all subjective. We have different ways of seeing where the action is or where the center of the universe is. But we all just kind of assume on Sunday when we come to church, it's just kind of some uh, nice thing that we do. We sing some good songs and we listen to a good word and we get to know each other. No, it's so much more than that. When we come to church on a Sunday, we're actually the center of God's Uh, cosmic drama of healing and rescuing and saving and changing and transforming not only our lives, but the world itself. So koinonia is actually associated uh, with not just being a partner, but with mission. And now i got to talk to you about mission. You've heard me say this a lot. Christopher Wright, famous missiologist, said um, the church doesn't have a mission statement. The church doesn't have a mission statement. God's mission has a church. We don't, we don't, we don't like we, we don't have a mission statement. I know we're Jesus for the people church, but that's just not just a mission statement. That's actually our mission. And the reason why we're a Jesus for the people church is because we're a church on mission. In other words, we are gathering together, not just so we can do church things. And maybe do the Pentecostal two-step and maybe high-five each other. And again, here's some nice messages. We are gathering together because we're on mission. God has a mission for us. God has a purpose for us. And it's not just for us, it's for the world. We're we're a mission, and I'm unapologetic about this. We are a mission-shaped church, not a consumer-based church. We don't make decisions based on convenience or comfort or what do the people like, and obviously those are okay questions, but we like the questions uh, go like this, God, what do you want us to do? Where are you leading us in this next season of our life as a church, and how do we get a part of that, or how do we become a part of that? Can I get an amen? Amen. It's funny, I, I, um, my wife and I, we made a decision to move downtown, and we were living in the suburbs, and some of you have heard me share this story before. I lived my entire adult life off of Macmillan, 15 years off of McMillan Street. Um, I grew up kind of like a farmer. I'm pretty much a farmer, you know, I, I like to hunt, and anyways, I'm like totally outdoors. Camping is my thing, you know what I mean? Uh, and, but but I that's why I like McMillan is because you're kind of you're out of the you know out of the way you're kind of in the suburbs you got you got more property all that kind of stuff and about two and a half years ago God began to speak to my wife and she really felt like we we're supposed to at least think about moving downtown and I remember telling her that's of the devil and I don't know why you would think that and about it took me about a week and I started praying through uh, moving downtown. And I really, I really like my comfort. I remember God took me to the book of Jonah. And some of you have heard me uh, talk about Jonah before. But Jonah, it's interesting. If you're not familiar with this, this story, Jonah, he's a prophet. Now, I don't know if you know anything about prophets. Prophets have no problem telling people the truth. Right? Anyone like that? You're just a truth teller? All right, you just need to back it up a little bit, Right? But prophets, that, that prophetic gift, they, they're, they're not scared. They're not scared of anyone. They're not scared of like people groups. They're going to they're gonna speak what they feel like God has spoken to them. So I remember thinking that the reason why Jonah, um, he woke up one day, God came to him and said, I want you to go to this big city. It's a pagan city. It's called Nineveh. And I want you to preach judgment. I thought as a young man that Jonah was scared. The reason why he decided to rebel against God and get on a boat and go in the opposite direction of Nineveh itself is because he was intimidated with the call that God had for him. And I'm realizing that's not the case. Now, let me just uh, share the story really quick. He's in the boat. Uh, He's taking a nap, and uh, they get hit by this storm. And so these pagan sailors come down uh, to the bottom of the boat, and they wake him up. And uh, they're like, hey, Jonah, do you you know what's going on? And Jonah's like, "Uh, oops, sorry, guys. Um, I think this is because I rebelled against um, God. So they're like, okay, what do we do? And Jonah's like, he comes up with a harebrained idea. He's like, ah, just, ah, ah, how about you throw me in the water, right? So I'm sure these sailors are like, what, what are you, great? you're crazy. We're not going to do that. But after convincing uh, Jonah, explaining, they make, the, in their mind, this fateful decision to throw Jonah into the ocean. We all know the story. A great fish comes, swallows him. Uh, Jonah's in the, the belly of this fish for three days, and uh, he repents. The fish then vomits him. Or throws him up onto dry land and he goes to Nineveh. And uh, Jonah is such a good preacher that in three days, this is a massive city, probably about 150, 200,000 people in this city. Back then, this would have been um, cosmopolitan, would have been equivalent of New York City. Uh, after three days, not only the people are repenting, but all the animals, goldfish, dogs, they're in sackcloth, they're repenting themselves. So Jonah, is. He preached a good message. He's, he, basically, the message is, God's going to come and judge this city if you don't get right. So at the end of the story, he goes outside the city. He kind of settled in on the, the outskirts or the edge of the city. It's kind of his mission compound. And he gets into a conversation with God. He starts to complain. He's sitting there. And he's frustrated with God, and he's waiting for God to judge the city. He's on the outside, and he's having a conversation with God saying, God, don't you remember these these Ninevites? Don't you remember their history and what they did to Israel, your people, and how they killed and, and raped and tortured your people? God, why won't you judge them? It's fascinating. Jonah then shows us his heart. The reason why he rebelled against God, got on that ship, and went in the opposite direction of Nineveh is because he said, I knew, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew because I know that you're absurdly generous. I know that you're just, you're just so good and that if these like psych, pagan psychopaths would repent, you would forgive them of their sin. And what's fascinating is that you have a conversation with God and Jonah and God is pleading with Jonah for Nineveh and Jonah is not playing it. He wants God to judge the city. He wants God to judge all the atheists, all the Democrats, all the Republicans, all the homosexuals, all the people that don't line up with us. God, Jonah wanted to judge culture itself. It's wicked, it's depraved, it's sick to the bone. I'm on the outside, I'm gonna stay on the outside. God, please, exact judgment on this city. You know there's a lot of Christians like this. They they might not have a mission compound. They might not literally be on the edge of the city, but they get on Facebook, they get on Instagram, uh, they get on their blogs, they even have conversations with other people, and all they're talking about is judgment, 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 judgment. It's funny, when you talk judgment, 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 just so you know, you're going in the opposite direction of God. God's always speaking grace, generosity, goodness, love, healing. The point of the story, and it hit me, Is that the call of God for Jonah? The blessing that God gave to Jonah was not for him, it was for the sake of Nineveh. In in, in other words, we're given blessing and we're given gifts and we're given strengths, and God calls us not for us, but God calls us for the sake of everyone, for the sake of the city. Do you you know why we have Jesus for the people? Do you know why we have our big Easter event every single year where we reach 30,000, 35,000 people? Yes, we raise money, and yes, it can be a headache, and there's, there's a lot of traffic and a lot of crying kids, and kids hopped up on like um, candy, and parents that get mad every now and then, and we've had great things said about us, but we've also had some not-so-nice things said about us because of our event. But the reason why we do the event is not simply so we can like get a corner on the church market. We do this event because we are a church that wants to reach people. We are a mission-shaped church. You see, man, we don't have a mission statement. God's mission has a church. And we're here today, if you're in Christ and you're a saint, you're a partner in the kingdom of God. And you've been given gifts, not for you, not for just your family, but you've been given gifts for the sake of everyone in your neighborhood, at your work, in culture. Come on. I'm reading a fascinating, or I listened to a fascinating um, conversation between this British ethicist and um, another like uh, high-ranking intellectual. And uh, he, he kind of traced 80 years of evangelicalism Within America, and he he was very very appreciative of uh, all the things that American evangelicals have brought really to the world, and uh, he loves American evangelicalism and said said a lot of wonderful things. But at the end of this podcast, he goes, uh, "But there's one weakness when it comes to American evangelicals. This one weakness is that we have privatized our lives. We're 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 and, and things are changing, but." We're no longer engaged in culture. We're no longer engaged in the arts. We're no longer engaged um, intellectually with public uh, ideas. We're no longer engaged with it. You know, we have Christian music. And how many of you love Christian music? I love Christian music. And man, we got to take care of our kids. Can I get an amen to that? And I believe sort of in the mantra, safe for the family. Yes, we need to protect our kids, Right? We need to protect their minds. But can I say something? Man, if we're going to be a mission-shaped church, we can't live by safety and comfort. We're going to protect our kids, but we're going to protect our kids so they can learn to be on mission. And mission can be a very dangerous thing. So we are a people on mission And what's happened is you have senators, and again, no fault to anybody, you have senators that have their private Bible studies and they don't interact or engage other senators or unchurched uh, legislatures, right, or uh, uh, public figures. Uh, We have intellectuals, Christian intellectuals that are just, they've privatized their life and they're just speaking to the choir. We have Christian artists and singers that are just speaking or writing or singing to the choir. What we need as American evangelicals, if we want to transform our culture, we cannot withdraw from it. We can't remove ourselves from it. The strengths that God has given you Whether that's painting, or whether that's poetry, or whether that's you just like doing stuff with your hands. Maybe you're a mechanic. I don't know. Maybe you're an intellectual or a philosopher. Those gifts that God has given for you, it's not for you. God wants to work through you for the sake of everyone, for the sake of the world. You are an image bearer. And I don't think I mentioned this before, but man, the reason, some people have have come up to me and said, Chris, I have never experienced the presence of God before in my life. And I say it very gently, and I'm like, you're wrong. They're like, huh? Um, because what they think is that experiencing the presence of God has to be dramatic. Right? That they have to, like, see a vision of Jesus, or they have to see light, or the heavens have to open, or whatever. Um, but, but I have to disagree with that. Everyone in this room has experienced the presence of Jesus. How so, Chris? Anytime your dad who loves Jesus speaks an encouraging word over you. You know what that is? That's just not your dad speaking. He's an image bearer. And he represents King Jesus. So anytime you've received encouragement, anytime someone has served you or taken care of your family or has provided for your needs, you have come up against the very living presence of Jesus. We are image bearers. And we have a responsibility to reflect the goodness and the blessing and the grace and the generosity of God to our city. This is what we're called to do. Behind all of this is, it's, it's not profound, but behind being on mission, behind reaching people, what is it? It's love. It's love. Like some of you don't know this. The reason why, like some of you get really frustrated with me when I talk about cats and like, I'm so, why are you like, Chris, why are you so negative about cats? Can I tell you my history with cats? I remember about nine years ago, my wife decided, I mean, we, we wanted kids. We couldn't have kids at that time. And so uh, she came up with this idea, Chris, let's go get a cat. So we went to the mall and um, we decided to get a calico and we named her Emma. We brought her home. And for three years, it was like our, our house was turned into like, uh, like hell. And I'm not joking, Cal- don't get a calico, right? If you have a calico, you love a calico, we love you, but you need to get rid of that calico, okay? But I'm not, I mean, we would wake up in the middle of the night and Emma would be like in this feline position staring at us. I'm like, do you want to eat me? You know, it's like, she's just like neurotic, like part psychopathic, it's like, it was, just, it was just a bad situation. And then probably a year later, my wife decided to get two more cats, We already had psychopath Emma, kitty, and then we got two more cats because my wife just, she has a large heart. She just loves everything and everyone, and it's exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting. So some of you are like, well, Chris, why would you, if you had a bad experience with Emma, why would you allow two more cats into your house? Well, it's because I love my wife. I don't love those little creatures but I love my wife. In other words, as many pastors will tell you this, we, you hear this all the time, love made me do it, right? Like when we had our kids and we brought our kids home and I remember Quincy, you've heard me share the story, the first day we get back to our house, Quincy literally poops all over the wall, poops all over me. I had to get through the nausea, right? I had to get through, I'm, I'm like, I'm about ready to vomit. And the, the way that I was able to get through the last six years of poop and messes and vomit and slime and just house being destroyed (laughs) is because I love my kids. So when we make a decision to privatize our lives, to not engage our city, to not even be serious, you don't have to be, hear me, you don't have to be an extrovert um, to be on mission. But if you're not even serious about sharing Jesus to other people, or at least helping other people, you don't have just an intellectual problem or a theological problem. I just have to make the argument, I think you got a love problem. Love. It's love. It's love. It's God's love. Hear me. It's God's love that motivates us to reach people in this city. Chris, why do we plant that campus downtown? It's because of love. Why are we going to plant more campuses throughout the Intermountain region? It's because of love. We love people, and we know that God has given us gifts, not so we can use them for our own sake, but for the sake of people in this city. Let's, if, if mission, I want to say this right. If mission is not the thing that defines you, if your gifts equal God working through me for the sake of everyone else, if that's not the thing that shapes you, if you're just simply coming just to have a a, a nice, good-feel message. We love you. Please keep on coming. You're amazing. But I think there's a point, if we lose our sense of mission, we lose our anointing. If we lose our sense of mission, we lose God's blessing. Like it could be, maybe, maybe not for most of us, maybe a few of us, maybe the reason why you're really frustrated with your, in life, maybe the reason why you feel like you just lack something or you're missing something, it could be because you've lost your sense of mission for the world. God wants to work through you to reach people in your neighborhood, to reach people in your city, reach people in this world. We are going to be, and I've been preaching this for a long time, but we will be, I'm unapologetic about this, we will be a mission-shaped church where the gifts that God has given us, we are going to use as image bearers to declare to everyone that God loves them. So this is what partnership is all about. Like if we, we lose this, if we lose our sense of mission, we're like a hospital without healing patients, right? Or a hospital that decides not to serve patients. We're like, we're like uh, man, Apple no longer designing computers and phones and whatever. We're like the Golden State Warriors deciding to play golf and not basketball. This is, this is why we're here. You're here and you might feel broken this morning. And you, you might feel like you're um, a misfit. You feel, maybe you even feel like your life is messed up. I have good news for you. God has a mission for you. And that mission or the purpose that God has for you is not dependent on you getting your life together. Let God get your life together. Let him put your life together. And then he'll put you on mission. And he'll use your gifts and your strengths and his calling and the blessing that he gives you for the sake of the world. And then Paul says in verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who would begin a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You're partners. We don't just sit in pews or chairs. We are partners. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a partner. You are a partner. You're not someone who sits on the sideline. I, this is good evangelical preaching this morning, right? You don't just sit on the sideline eating a hot dog and drinking some some Coke or Pepsi, whatever your thing is, and watching the game, right? We are in the game. You are not a spectator. You are an actor. You are a participant in this unfolding, beautiful cosmic drama of rescue and salvation and grace and glory and generosity. You are God's image bearer. So God will bring... His mission in your life to completion. You won't, but God will. And then we come to verse seven. It is right for me, Paul writes, to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers. Everyone say partakers. You are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here's the thing. When you get on mission, you get friends. When you get on mission, You get friends. What Paul is saying is you're partakers. Essentially what he's trying to say, guys, 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 check this out. You're my friends. We're a part of this this circle of friendship. It's been missionized. Um, God is doing something through me, but it's not just through me. It's through all of us. Like Lydia, you have a part to play. Remember, Lydia, um, the, uh, demoniac girl, you have a part to play. Roman jailer, you have a part to play. We're a part of this great symphony of friendship, and everything we do matters. And, and this is important because koinia, or partnership, and being on mission is the thing that will cure you of your loneliness. I did loneliness studies, a couple of them this, this week, and it's, it's fascinating. 40% of our nation is lonely up from 20% since 19, mid-1980s. Uh, what they're saying is that loneliness kills. Social scientists will tell you that loneliness is more terrifying than anxiety. For example, my wife and I, we went to, the, uh, last year, the Botanical Gardens. And we had a, a pretty big party and, and uh, we were looking at the gardens and the lights. And uh, because we were pretty big, we kinda lost track of our boys. Actually, my wife lost track of my boys. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> And um, so we were looking at each other, and we we couldn't find them. And we were looking around. And I remember I kind of went up the mountain, and then my wife went down the mountain and found my boys. My boys were holding hands. I was so proud of them. They were what four, four, three or four years old, and they were just holding hands. And Q, true to his personality, was crying. And then Wes, his lip his lip was quivering, but he was like trying to be strong for his bro. And it was just one of those moments where, obviously when they saw us, they're like, why did you leave us? And I'm like, babe, why are you such a bad mom? And (laughs) totally kidding, right? And I remember one of them, I can't remember who it was. They came afterwards after we found them and looked up to me and said, dad, dad, please don't ever leave me. And I remember aloneness, that feeling of being alone afflicts so many Christians. In fact, social scientists will tell you that um, loneliness, the subjective loneliness, or even social isolation is a big public issue, on public health issue on par with obesity and drug addiction. It's destroying people. People don't have deep friends. Like go to your yearbook right now and tell me how many friends do you still have from high school, right? Not a whole lot. Friendship, the world can offer friendship, but friendships... On the world, standards are ephemeral. They're momentary. They're based on uh, preference or uh, geography. Went to the same school or whatever, and we're friends. But it's Jesus' friendship. When, When people get on mission, when people know that they're called for something more than just taking care of themselves, when they know that God wants to put their life back together and bless them for the sake of the world, guess what happens? people start coming alongside of each other. C.S. Lewis said, friendship is like you turning to your side and like, oh, you too? Right, you like the same things? We're on the same kind of mission? That's what friendship is all about. When you try to get friends, you'll never get friends. If you get on mission, God's mission, you get your mind on him and you start obeying what God wants you to do. And like Kate and Cokey, like you say yes to Jesus, that's when friends start coming around. And that's when you experience the depth of friendship. Is when you say yes to God's mission. So then we come to, I think we're verse 8. Verse 8. Paul continues, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And then in verse nine, he says, this is how we get into Jesus' partnership or koinonia. This is how we experience it. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And then he says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then he ends with like a doxology in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How do we get on mission? How do we get God's heart? Let me say it this way. You can't manufacture it. You can't, you can't like in your own strength try to love people. You can only pray your way into this. And I have a recommendation. I think this is what Paul is saying. Paul is essentially saying, make prayer the first thing you do, not the last thing you do. And then make prayer, change your focus. I'm gonna, this is a challenge I wanna issue to our church this week. If you wanna be on mission, if, if you wanna love like Jesus, if, if you wanna get into deep friendships, start with praying not for your needs or focusing on your needs. I want you to pray that God would overflow you with his love. To overflow, overflow here, it says that Paul says, I want your love to overflow, or I want your love to be abundant or to abound. We speak of the river overflowing its banks, like in the spring. That is a picture of what Paul is saying. I want you and the love that God puts in your heart to overflow, to overflow the cultural, sociological, psychosocial, theological boundaries you see this world has restricted their love to tolerance tolerance basically means i'll put up with you right i'll just simply put up with you unfortunately tolerance just gets you halfway to christian agape there's nothing wrong with respecting people can i get an amen to that you have to respect people we need more civility more charity more love in our conversation with people that we disagree with can i get an amen But tolerance can only get you halfway to agape because tolerance now is now experiencing or growing into this contradiction. We only tolerate people that are tolerable or who are tolerant. The good news is that the gospel says very clearly that Jesus died for us when we were sinners and we were broken and we were out of our minds, right? And we were sideways, sideways, and our life was upside down. Yet Jesus, when we were in sin, died for us. I'm so glad that God was not just tolerant of our sin, that he went all the way, that he made a decision to put us before his feelings, us before how he felt. Can I get an amen to that? This is what love is. Love makes a decision. It is a decision of the will to love someone and to put someone and their good above your own good. That's what love is. And the reason why I think Paul makes it very clear that we need to ask God for our love to overflow is because we have a church that's made up, the church in Philippi, of radical diversity. Again, you have Lydia, fashion mogul from Thyatira. She's she's mixing it up with this young demoniac girl, former demoniac girl who had a conversion experience, right? She's Greek. And then we move into this Roman jailer uh, who, you know, kind of a blue collar guy, liked to torture people. He had his conversion experience. And now you have this radical social mix, unheard of in the ancient world. Yeah, the sharp verticality when it came to um, who was in and who was out. There were a few people that were in and who were blessed, and the rest of the population was out. But in the church in Philippi, which is all about what Jesus for the people is all about, we have this beautiful social mix. And I think the reason why Paul says, hey, you need to love each other and make sure that your love is overflowing because, man, we all have our differences. We come from a radically different context and backgrounds. Some of you are Oakland Raider fans. Some of you are dog people. Some of you are cat people. Some of you have different personalities. We have extroverts and introverts. We have some Republicans. We have some Democrats. And God brings us together, and we have to learn to love each other. Like, man, um, family or, or being a part of this partnership, it's messy. It's messy. One scholar said, man, people just assume the church is like a Victorian uh, parlor and you don't have to pick anything up, right? All the china is set in place. It's absolutely perfect and it's always clean. No, no, the church is like a messy living room or family room. There's dirt on the floor. The dog tracked in dirt. There's like vomit, I don't know, all over the place. Your house is a mess. That is a picture of what the church is about, And that's why we have to have our love overflow. That's why we have to pray that our love overflows. Because yes, we're saints who are in Christ Jesus, yet we still sin. And we still make mistakes. But not only do we need to have our love overflowing, Paul says, I want you to couple love with love, knowledge and wisdom and discernment. In other words, Paul is saying there is a right way to live. There, there, there's a particular way that this world is um, structured. In other words, you can't just do whatever you want to do. Uh, you can't have an easygoing um, approach to Christianity. Uh, what, what I think Paul is challenging is this bifurcation of the Christian mind and the Christian heart. In other words, we have, we have Christians in the church that have a Christian heart. They just love people. Um, but they don't have a Christian mind. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to speak into difficult situations. Then you have people that have a Christian mind and they're full of knowledge and they, they, they understand what God wants them to do, but they don't have a Christian heart. That's not overflowing with love. Paul says we don't play that, that bifur- bifurcating game or that separation of heart and head. Heart and head are always coupled together in the kingdom of Jesus. We're supposed to overflow with love but we're also supposed to live our lives wisely. And then he says in verse 10, the reason why we're supposed to have hearts overflowing with love and wisdom, knowledge, and discernment is that we might approve the best kind of life, what is superior. There's a best kind of life. There are styles of behavior that are deformational. There are styles of behavior that destroy us. And we need God's love to overflow in our heart, and we need his wisdom so that we can choose the right way. Which leads to verse 11, that our lives would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Our lives will be filled with love and joy and peace. And that happens through Jesus for the sake of God's Glory. I want us to pray this prayer this week that we would pray that our hearts would overflow with love, that we would know what God, the best life that God has for us. Amen, church. And that we would move into uh, knowing how to anticipate the day of Jesus, which Paul talks about at the end of verse 10. And then let's pray that our lives will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. We talked about this last week, and I'm going to end here. Your job is not to be fruitful. Your job is not to make yourself joyful or more loving or more kind. That's Jesus' job. Your job is simply to focus on Jesus. And when you focus on Jesus, that's when you'll experience fruit in your life. Second Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 8 says that they were first, and this is Paul talking about the Macedonian church, and he's talking about their astonishing generosity, and he says, they first committed their lives to Jesus, and then they committed their lives to us. What would happen if we committed our lives to Jesus, if this week we prayed every single day, Jesus, you're first, and we start with Jesus, and we allow his love to overflow in our life, and within that context, we begin to see how this world is, and we begin to see what God wants us to do, that is when we'll experience the fruits of righteousness in our life. That is when we begin to change the world. Amen? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.